0: As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist in New York. I'm
0: John Fassman. And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
1: For much of the 19th century, cultural trends came from Europe. For most of the 20th, film, music, and fashion trends tended to start in America. In the 21st century, things aren't so simple or so monodirectional.
0: And buying booze in India's capital Delhi has long involved jostling queues and dingy, poorly stocked government shops. That changed briefly when the city's alcohol laws were liberalized. But those restrictions and the queues are back. First up, though, Ukraine has come under widespread attack this morning. The capital, Kyiv, has been rocked by multiple explosions. It's the first time it's been targeted in months. But cities across the country have also reportedly been shelled. The onslaught was clearly sparked by Saturday's attack on the Kerch Bridge, which links Russia with the annexed Crimean Peninsula, an act that the Russian President Vladimir Putin called terrorism. Today, Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky echoed that charge in response to the attacks on Ukrainian cities. We are dealing with terrorists, he said. They've chosen the time and targets to harm as many as possible. It remains unclear who attacked the Kerch Bridge or how. And it's unclear how long Russia can keep up this brutal pounding right across Ukraine. Whatever the answers, it seems Mr. Putin's war has again entered a new and worrisome phase.
2: So I'm speaking to you from Odessa this morning. Um, If I uh, have to interrupt and go downstairs to the bomb shelter, you'll know why that is. We're in the middle of a multiple wave attack, which we haven't seen since the start of the war.
0: Oliver Carroll is in Ukraine, covering the war for The Economist.
2: — Kiev was hit with multiple attacks this morning. Lviv, Kharkiv, Dnipro, and uh, obviously everyone is wondering what's coming next. The president, Zelensky, is asking everyone to stay in bomb shelters and basically to, to hold on and, in his words, to stay strong. But this is a very shocking morning all across Ukraine.
0: And I guess the expectation was that Russian forces would hit back after what happened at the Kerch Bridge, but this exceeds even those expectations?
2: It does. We were obviously expecting a reaction, certainly after last night when uh, Putin essentially accused Ukraine of carrying out a terrorist attack. And it's important to understand that the Crimean Bridge was very important symbolically, because Putin himself had invested a lot of his own personal political capital into the project. This was the symbol of the annexation of Crimea. This was his sort of crown jewels. And it was for a long time considered impregnable. They talked about 20 layers of security. Uh, But the Ukrainians apparently seemed to find a way through. So for the fact it was such a personal project, but also strategically critical to the war effort in the southern theatres, where Russian forces rely on the heavy machinery and the logistics and the fuel which comes across that bridge, it was an important moment. And I think it would be seen as a turning point in this already very long and cruel war.
0: And you said the Ukrainians seem to have found a way through. You're assuming they're responsible here.
2: It's too early to be definite still. Officially, the Ukrainians are not commenting about this. Um, On the publicly available evidence, the images, the footage, the optics are too grainy to make conclusive conclusions at this point. The Russians are saying this was an explosion caused by a truck bomb organized by the Ukrainian secret services. But there are other theories. This might have been an underwater drone. It might have been a boat. Other people are talking about missiles. But it's still unlikely at this stage. The experts I've spoken to do talk about the truck being the most obvious reason for what happened. And it might be one of those moments in history where we only find out actually what happened many years down the line. but. With all these moments in history, it's important not so much who caused it, but what happens afterwards. And we're certainly seeing the outlines of a brutal response. Zaporozhye was hit first, and that's been a particular target. Multiple attacks in the last few days. Zaporozhye is very close to the Russian front lines. And a lot of the missiles, in fact, landing in Zaporozhye have been sent from the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. And what seems to be happening is the Russians were using that as a nuclear shield.
0: So if the historically important thing here is what happens next, what do you see happening beyond these clearly punitive attacks from Russia?
2: With all these multiple attacks, there's a very clear change of posture. And the posture is on the one hand because of what happened in Crimea. But we also have an important moment in that Putin has just appointed a fairly notorious general called Sergei Surovikin to lead the offensive. By all accounts, a very cruel man. He was on the side of the hardliners during the 1991 coup. He has a criminal record for stealing weapons. And he's been through Afghanistan, Chechnya, the second Chechen campaign, certainly involved in some of the worst offences and some of the most hardline operations in Syria. And just yesterday, I was speaking to a senior Ukrainian intelligence official. And he said he wasn't expecting good things, and he called him no less than a butcher. So it would be certainly wise to expect more of the same from Russia in the days to come. At the moment, we know there is a third wave of attack coming our way. 47 rockets apparently headed towards Ukraine, according to the governor of Mykolaiv province. And there are also reports that Russia is sending Iranian-made drones across from Belarus. We knew they were already there, and we know they have approximately 1,000 of them. Up until today, they've been launching about three dozen a day. They're fairly primitive things, and the Ukrainians, in normal circumstances, have learned to intercept them, how to intercept them with their defense. But it's a question of overwhelming systems, that if they send so many of them, quite a few will get through to devastating effect. So it's already very bad news, and it might be worse.
0: And on those calls for a more concerted effort, a more assertive campaign on the battlefield, I mean, that is not the narrative of the past couple of weeks. It has been Russia on the back foot. How much more does Russia have in the tank, as it were?
2: It's an open question. Certainly, Russia has the capacity to strike, even in the center of Kiev. They do have missiles which are very hard to intercept. They're very fast. And really, if they send enough of them over, there's no way that Kiev's reasonably effective air defenses would intercept them. Uh, so we've known that they had this capacity. And one of the big questions of the war so far is why they hadn't targeted the center of Kiev. But this is clearly one step up in the escalation. And how many more steps in the escalation they can go is unclear.
0: So you've told us about the attacks on Ukraine's cities. But what about on the front line itself? How might all of this change the way Ukraine is doing at the battlefront?
2: Well, Russian forces are already under the kosh, all along the front lines. They're dug into the western bank of the Dnieper River in Kherson. Perhaps 10 to 20,000 troops there face the prospect of either surrendering or retreat. And there's also a fairly a strong Ukrainian push in the east in Lugansk province, with Ukrainian forces rapidly approaching a town called Svatava, And if they were to take that, you would expect a more general collapse of Russian forces because the area behind that is very hard to defend. But Ukraine has also been hinting that it might attempt a more daring operation south of Zaporozhye city. And the aim there would be to destroy one of Mr. Putin's big projects, the land bridge, joining Russia to Crimea. It would be a big ask. It's one of the most fortified sections of the front line. But if it were to happen, both Kherson and Crimea would look very exposed. I think the thing to say is, Ukraine has time and time again shown in a remarkable campaign we should expect the unexpected. But I think today's events tells us that uh, we should rather expect the same from Russia.
0: Oliver, thanks very much for your time.
2: It's a pleasure.
3: Xi Jinping is the most powerful man in the world, and a big mystery. I'm Su Lin Wong, host of The Prince, a new podcast from The Economist. It's the real story of China's leader, his traumatic childhood, his rise through a brutal regime, and the lessons he learned. Now, he wants to reshape the world. To understand what's next, you need to know where he came from. Listen to The Prince from The Economist wherever you get your podcasts.
4: You've seen the headlines, bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.
3: In July this year, massive crowds descended on Jamsil Arena in Seoul, the South Korean capital. They were there to see Super Junior, which is a band that's really at the crest of the Korean wave. There were fans from all around the world there.
0: So where are you guys from? Uh, I'm from Peru. Altar, how are you? I'm from Ecuador.
3: And it really sort of gave you a sense of the global reach that K-pop has. We wandered around Seoul and we were asking people from abroad why they chose to come to South Korea.
5: I've been interested in like Korean culture for like several years now, so it's kind of been a dream of mine to come here.
3: For one young woman called Angel, K-pop was a big draw.
5: First it was the food and then the music which started with, like, BTS, and now, like, a bunch of other Korean artists. And then I started learning the language a little bit, so.
3: The rise of South Korean pop culture, not just the music, but the films, fashion, beauty brands, it's part of a broader transformation of cool, as I see it.
1: Avantika Chokoti is an international correspondent for The Economist.
3: A century ago, you could think of Europe as the capital of cool. People around the world look to places like London and Paris in the search of the latest fashions.
4: Skirts are on a rising market in the Paris fashion marts for spring and summer, and the severe straight lines... Have a...
3: And we saw that gradually drift to America. You had punk rock music, and hip hop coming out of New York.
1: Tom,
3: new trails of, of course, you have Hollywood and L.A. More recently, you've got this whole tech culture coming out of San Francisco, this lifestyle of hoodies and hallucinogens. And you get the sense that the capital of cool is constantly on the move.
1: So where is it now?
3: What we seem to think, and we've been looking at data on this, is that cool is not moving to one place now. Now it's actually dispersing. So if you think about a teenager who's sitting in New York, they probably listen to K-pop, they probably listen to some Afrobeats music, which is sort of a West African style, and they probably also listen to American hip-hop. Similarly, if you're a young person in Mumbai looking to stream some good television, you're just as likely to watch Made in Heaven. Made in Heaven believes the wedding should celebrate the couple. The theme should tell their story. Which is sort of an Indian-made romantic drama. They're just as likely to watch Squid Game, the big hit Korean drama. And on social media, young people follow influencers with absolutely no regard to where in the world these people are based.
1: This all sounds very plausible to me, but, but how do we know it's true? How can we prove this?
3: So we've been digging through a lot of data on this. The first bit of data we looked at was trade data. The OECD, which is a rich countries club, it estimates imports of what they call audiovisual services, things like films, radio, television. And the OECD reckons that America contributed about one fifth of imports of these services to other countries in 2021. That's down one third from a decade earlier. At the same time, America's imports of these services has increased more than fivefold to over twenty five billion dollars. And that gap is not being plugged by one country. There's not just you know, one big exporter of audiovisual services, we're seeing that lots of countries are exporting a bit of this stuff. We also drill down in the music industry. So our clever colleagues in the data team trawled through Spotify and the top 100 hits in 70 countries between 2017 and the end of 2021. And they sorted stuff by language, and English language content, a lot of which comes out of America and Western Europe, it still dominates. But in countries that have a strong local tradition of music, so say India, Brazil, South Korea, there you see that over the past five years, the share of streams of English language tracks in that top 100 has dropped really sharply. In Spain and Latin America, the share of English language tracks in the top 100 has also dropped quite a lot. And we have instances of individuals, people like Bad Bunny, the Puerto Rican rapper, who are topping charts globally now.
1: And so in that shift, Antigua I guess I want to ask, where's the cart and where's the horse? Is this artist trying to appeal more to their local markets? Or is it local consumers being more conscientious about supporting artists from the local markets?
3: In part, this is a story about the emerging of emerging markets, right? So emerging market consumers, they now have the money to support the local arts and entertainment industry. They've got smartphones and internet connections so that when a young person in India finds a crack they really like, they start sharing it with the rest of the world. You've also got social media playing a part. So back in the day, you needed to get the attention of a Hollywood agent or a TV distributor to really make it as a actress or a singer and nowadays no matter where you are around the world if you create good content you can share it globally and there aren't the same gatekeepers around. I'm also interested in the fact that often people are creating content for their local market with absolutely no intention for it to be internationally popular and then it takes off.
4: After seeing the first six episodes we smell that there is something very particular. But uh, for the reason that.
3: So when I was in Paris recently, I interviewed one of the producers of a TV show called Call My Agent, Michel Fellier.
4: But uh, when f- we finished the first season, we knew that we have created something very original uh, in France, and we hope that. Uh,
3: and he told me that they had no idea that this would make it beyond French television and take off elsewhere.
1: So what does it say about Western pop culture and the sort of more traditional sources of cool? What's happening to them?
3: So what you're really starting to see is that those traditional purveyors of cool are being forced to change. Take the French luxury fashion industry. That's got to be one of the most traditional corners of sort of cool. And there you see big brands collaborating with foreign designers. You see them when they host events, inviting influencers from all across the world. When, for example, last year, COVID travel restrictions prevented Chinese local influencers coming to Paris Fashion Week, for example, Balenciaga, the luxury label, they took one of their collections to Shanghai instead. It's really a recognition of the fact that the tastemakers of today are really, a lot of them are coming from the emerging world.
1: And so are governments trying to take advantage of this?
3: So there's no doubt governments can be watching all of this closely. Governments want to be producers of cool because that basically means having soft power, having the ability to draw people to your country, get them to be interested in studying there, learning your language, basically sympathizing with your values. The trouble is that as cool is becoming more dispersed, as popular culture moves online and it's much quicker pretty difficult for anyone, let alone a government, to figure out what's going to take off and to promote it. Fundamentally, there's there's nothing less cool than being state-backed.
1: All right, Avantika, thanks so much for joining us today.
3: Thanks for having me, John.
1: India has a complex relationship with alcohol stretching all the way back to its independence. Mahatma Gandhi was a champion of the temperance movement. Liquor, he said, was worse than any other evil. He accused the British of standing in the way of sobriety. That conservative attitude persists, but not in every state. In Mumbai, for example, it's easy to get alcohol. You can go to an off-license or have it delivered to your door. But in the Indian capital, finding your favorite tipple is a much harder task.
5: Buying booze from a government-run shop in Delhi is an ordeal. These shops are pretty unpleasant. They're usually hidden in very unsalubrious markets. So they tend to have metal grills and big bars in front of them. Large queues of jostling men who are sort of trying to get hold of whatever it is you can get that day.
1: Lena Shipper is the Economist's South Asia bureau chief and is based in Delhi.
5: So last year, the party that governs Delhi, the Ahmadni party, belatedly came to the realisation that having to buy booze in these shops is pretty unpleasant. And they decided to liberalise alcohol sales by handing over the market to the private sector in its entirety. But unfortunately, that policy uh, did not last very long.
1: Okay, so let's start with that policy. What happened when private vendors were allowed to start selling alcohol?
5: The new booze policy, which took effect in November 2021, improved life for consumers. So new private alcohol shops sprang up all over Delhi. If you're a woman, you could suddenly go into a nice, well-lit shop that occasionally even had a female shop assistant, buy your own booze instead of you know, having to call your male friends and say, hey, can you get into that horrible government shop queue for me so I didn't have to go and have my bum touched by everybody, essentially. The legal drinking age was going to be reduced from 25 to 21. And the policy was supposed to curb corruption in the market for alcohol and raise tax revenue for the government. Then on the 1st of September, the government monopoly was restored. And now even the handful of private shops that were allowed to sell alcohol in the old regime got. gone.
1: Why is that? Why did Ahmadmi decide to restore the government monopoly?
5: So the main reason is political infighting. The alcohol liberalisation policy quickly became a flashpoint between the AAP and the Bharatiya Janata Party, or BJP, which is the party that runs India at the national level. Um, So in India's federal system, Delhi is not quite a state, uh, nor is it directly ruled by the national government, and it's something in between, which creates this possibility for friction between the AAP, which has the Delhi government and the BJP that runs the country. So the BJP also exercises control over bits of the capital's administration, and it was against this policy from the start.
1: But from what you said earlier, it sounded like the policy change was successful. Why did the BJP want to get rid of it?
5: The reason they gave was that the AAP is about to turn the capital into a den of vice, it's corrupting women and it's corrupting young people, it's encouraging drinking and other horrible behaviour. But the real reason is probably that it saw an opportunity to poke a rival party in the eye, because if you look at Haryana, which is the state right next to Delhi where the BJP is in charge, The alcohol policy is actually much more liberal than in Delhi, and they don't seem to mind the revenue that comes from that in that state. The BJP has been fighting this policy tooth and nail for the entire time that it's been in place. And one of the ways in which it's done that is alleged corruption in the awarding of liquor licenses, which the AAP denies. But it still ditched the policy after the central government's agencies launched a corruption probe and raids against its officials earlier this year.
1: And so what has resulted from reintroducing the government monopoly?
5: So the immediate result has been a shortage of alcohol, which has basically been going on all summer, because the announcement that the policy was going to change in September was made in July. A lot of the new shops just sold down their stock and then shut down. Bars and restaurants ran dry for weeks. People in Delhi dug out their bootleggers phone numbers again. (laughs) And the very determined drinkers have been forced to drive across the border again into neighbouring Haryana, where alcohol is much more easily available and cheaper.
1: So do you think this reversal is permanent, or do you think we'll see those private shops you mentioned at the beginning opening up again?
5: So for now, Delhi's a a much drier city. You know, the government has retaken control. All the shops that sell alcohol are run by the government. The stock availability is still really bad. You know, you sometimes go into one and they have one type of beer that you don't want to drink. That problem persists. Licensing policy is decided on an annual basis. So it changes every tax year, which means that the AAP will probably try again in the coming months for a new policy. So we may well see a triple reversal. Anything is possible in the crazy world of Indian alcohol policy.
1: All right, Lena, thanks so much for joining us today.
5: Thank you very much for having me, John.
0: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at And
1: you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
4: You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.